Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. Hey, we are here to take your questions on the Word of God. As we often tell you, we uh, dedicate this program each and every day to exploring the most important questions any human being will ever ask. That is, questions about having a personal relationship with God as that relationship's revealed to you in His divinely inspired Word, the Bible. So if you've got questions maybe about a passage in the Bible, maybe applying the Word of God, uh, maybe tough questions have been raised uh, regarding the reliability of God's Word in uh, your heart and your mind. Uh, maybe it's a question that's always been percolating in the back of your mind. Uh, you never found a no-harm, no-foul, non-judgmental place to get those questions answered. Hey, uh, bring them on. Uh, our only standard for the questions that we answer here on the broadcast, pretty simple. Just make sure it's a sincere question, and if you're looking for an answer straight from the Scripture, we'll be happy to do it. The issues of the day, uh, even the issues of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, also on the table. Uh, we really want to answer the questions that are nearest and dearest to you. So uh, get uh, on our internet connections and send those questions along. Uh, Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, if you're joining us online, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like spelling for that, you can join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to our page where we are streaming at ccftucson.online.church. There, of course, you will not only have the email address presented at the bottom of the screen, but you'll also have the chance to engage with us face-to-face -face through the chat format we have set on the right-hand side of the screen. If you take advantage of that, you'll not only have access to us directly, which we'll be keeping an eye on as the broadcast unfolds, but you can also use that email address if we didn't have time to get to your question before our time ran out. Speaking of time, if you want to know when our next stream is going to be, it's Monday through Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S., but if you want to know where that fits in, in your respective time zone or you just don't want to do the math, we have a countdown clock at the bottom of the screen if we are not currently live. So note that and take advantage of it. That's why we made it. Yeah. As well, if you want to join us on social media, YouTube is a reason for hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Give us a like or subscribe, and you'll be notified when we're going live in your respective time zone. But note as well, if you aren't notified of when we're going live, and of course the inconstancy that is social media manifests itself, you can still join us on our website. We right. don't control when or why we are banned. But if there isn't a technical malfunction, first to take responsibility for that, we will always be streaming. So if we don't appear on that timeline or yours, know that it was not our actions. Well, and uh, even earlier today, we had some pretty wacky things as far as our internet connection goes. Fortunately, nothing that affected this broadcast. So. Yeah, it, but uh, I mean, it really got down to certain uh, uh, Christian websites, uh, conservative websites, 
uh, were unable to be accessed, but other access, uh, websites were able to be accessed, and it was really kind of a strange thing. So Until our VPN got turned on, and then suddenly everything worked, which is why it got fishy. But regardless, those of you who don't speak technical lingo, just note that you can access us through those venues, and also you can take advantage of those resources at any time. We're looking forward to engaging with you. Just note that the standard for the questions are sincere, Bible and questions. If they are sincere, that means you want to hear the answer, that they are questions, that you actually are able right. to give us a question in that we provide an answer, not being told the answer. And of course, that the ultimate purpose of the question is leading us to the Bible. We'll be happy to address them. If you want to discuss hypotheticals or the weather or any of these other issues, there are channels for that. This isn't one of them. So we're looking forward to engaging with you and hope that this time will be a blessing, but it's no more, I guess, uh, no greater a blessing than to involve God directly in the process. So before we get to our prophecy, update and your questions, why don't we ask him to be a part of the broadcast too? Absolutely. Lord, thank you so much that uh, we uh, gather here as an internet family and even over the air with one purpose in mind, and that is to draw close to you. That is to hear your voice and to have your truth, your word, dwell in our hearts richly. Lord, we can't do that without the ministry of your Spirit. So we come before your throne of grace and ask that you would guide us into all truth. We ask, Lord, that for those that are maybe on the outside looking in at a love relationship with you, you would speak to their hearts and reveal yourself to them as uh, we discuss uh, what your Word has to say uh, about uh, the issues of the day and, and dig deep into the questions of the heart that are presented here. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray that you would edify, exhort, and comfort your people, and that at the end of this process, we'd come away with a deeper and fuller relationship with you than we started. Thank you, Lord, that we can bring this request before you in confidence, knowing that your word promises in 1 John chapter 5, that if we ask anything according to your will, you hear us. And if you hear us, we have the request which we've made of you. Lord, we know it is your desire that we know you better and that we worship you in spirit and in truth. So we ask that you would do that work here among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, what is going on as far as we left off on Friday? Well, uh, if you were with us on Friday, uh, we talked a bit about uh, the intensity of the conflict in the Middle East uh, increasing, you know, as far as a prophecy update is concerned. Uh, we've pointed out to you that in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, uh, among the birth pains that Jesus said would uh, lead to the time of his return uh, were, among other things, wars and rumors of wars. And uh, birth pains are an interesting phenomenon. Uh, when a woman is going into labor, her birth pains increase in frequency and intensity as the big day draws near. Well, if you were with us last Friday, we talked about a classic birth pain if you will, the conflict uh, between uh, Iran and uh, their desire to wipe Israel off the map and, uh, and, and Israel uh, going on in that neck of the woods. Uh, we shared with you that Iran had announced that it had achieved 90% enrichment of uh, uranium in their hidden centrifuges. They had also blocked the International Atomic Energy Agency from being able to monitor their goings-on in their underground nuclear sites. And uh, the uh, headlong rush for Iran to uh, develop and be able to deliver an atomic weapon uh, is, uh, is going full tilt. Well, the question comes up then, how is Israel responding to that? Well, 
couple things are happening in the Middle East right now that pertain to this particular birth pain. And, and uh, we really believe that in the next few weeks, you're going to see things get more and more intense as far as the conflict between Israel and Iran. Uh, the Prime Minister of Israel uh, issued a call today that uh, Israeli citizens who are visiting Turkey uh, immediately return to Israel because of uh, intelligence that reveals uh, the Iranians were attempting to assassinate Israeli tourists in that particular country. And so we can see the conflict is going on there. Headline in the Jerusalem Post today, by the way, the Jerusalem Post was one of those blocked websites we talked about uh, earlier. Fortunately, it's come back up. But the headline is this, Israel makes dramatic upgrades to military plans to attack Iran. And one of these uh, dramatic upgrades, actually there are two of them, uh, that are mentioned in this article are pretty crucial. First of all, Israel has upgraded the capacity of its F-35 stealth fighter jets uh, in such a way that they don't require refueling in order to strike targets in Iran and return to Israel. That was a major upgrade in terms of their uh, operational flying uh, range. Uh, that uh, really does uh, give Israel a, a first strike capability as far as being able to take out some of these Iranian nuclear sites if they choose to do so. Uh, Israel is busy upgrading its preparations for a future strike against Iran's nuclear capabilities. They have conducted a number of different war games, including one involving uh, United States forces, uh, the latest one taking place uh, near the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea, probably tied into the idea of uh, Iran striking at Israel's uh, developing natural gas facilities off its coast in the Mediterranean. But to, in addition to increasing the, uh, the operational range of the F-35s, uh, the stealth uh, fighters there, the IAF, the Israeli Air Force, also announced the development of a one-ton bomb that can be delivered by these fighter jets and not disturb its uh, radar-resistant stealth signature. Uh, the bomb uh, is autonomous. It's protected against jamming and electronic warfare systems, which uh, is a real major development going on here. It was uh, recently used in a series of tests uh, which were presented to Defense Minister Benny Gantz. Uh, the IAF has held four large-scale drills simulating attacks over Iran in the last month. Iran has countered by saying they now are at that 90% enrichment of the uranium, which would give them the capacity to be able to build a uh, operational uh, nuclear weapon. Uh, again, uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett uh, told the Knesset Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee that is Israel's Iran strategy, this is from the Jerusalem Post, has changed in the last year, and this is a very interesting announcement that he made, that Israel's uh, strategy as far as Iran is concerned is going to now be going against the head of the Iranian uh, uh, aggression and not just the arms as they had in recent years. What that means, in essence, is that Israel has had a policy of taking out uh, arms caches that were shipped into Syria, uh, the uh, terrorist cells and so forth, uh, the uh, military 
leaders and uh, e even nuclear scientists that were helping Iran develop its bombs. These would be considered the arms. Uh, what uh, Naftali Bennett is indicating is that even the Iranian leadership itself is not going to be immune to an Israeli strike if they continue to uh, show that they are going to uh, develop a nuclear weapon and use it uh, against Israel. Uh, again, this is uh, a huge development. A defense uh, official in Israel said Iran's surface-to-air missile systems and radars are crowded, and they are not the only challenge. We need to be able to attack targets that are significant, and attack needs to be able to cause extensive damage. There are multiple targets in Iran at different ranges. So uh, what we are, in a sense, uh, forecasting here, we're not prophesying or anything, but it does uh, appear that a major conflict between Iran and Israel is probably going to take place in uh, the next uh, months, if not weeks. It does appear that because Iran is approaching that 90 percent enrichment and has cut off all international inspections as to what they are doing there, that they are making that final headlong rush to having an operational nuclear weapon, Israel will simply not permit this. So I do believe that we will see a, uh, a war going on in the Middle East, you know, as far as uh, the effect on the world is concerned. Uh, we have already seen uh, this week a uh, dramatic drop in our stock market. We've seen oil prices spiking. Uh, I don't think we've seen anything yet. So hang on to your hats and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And you know the wonderful thing uh, about having a prophetic uh, picture in all of this, and we do tie it into very interesting detail that's given in Ezekiel 38 and 39 about a last day's military invasion of Israel led by Russia and will include Persia, which is the ancient and uh, actually preferred name for Iran. Uh, if you talk to someone from Iran and you say, oh, you're Iranian, they'll say, no, 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 I'm Persian. Uh, well, Persia is mentioned as one of the nations that will be alongside Russia in their last day's invasion of Israel. Now, that tells me a couple things. First of all, uh, Iran isn't going to be turned to a glass parking lot by Israel. They're not going to wipe uh, Iran out. I Iran is still going to be around. Israel is still going to be around during the time of the tribulation, the final seven years that leads up to the return of Jesus. I think we can deduce that from what's being mentioned there. Uh, we can also know that there is going to come a peace in that region that the Antichrist is going to bring into. Daniel chapter 9 speaks about a seven-year covenant with many nations that will allow Israel to rebuild its temple on its historic site. So we know Jerusalem is still going to be there. It's not going to be taken out in any kind of war. And, and that makes sense uh, because uh, even in Shiite Islam, uh, Jerusalem is considered a sacred site. Uh, the uh, Dome of the Rock, the Al-Aqsa mosques are considered to be sacred sites by that particular brand of Islam. So I don't think you can uh, look at, uh, say, Iran using a nuke on Jerusalem, but I think you can look at Iran uh, using a nuke, say, on Haifa. I think you can also uh, look at Iran trying to use a nuke on Israel's uh, nuclear site they have at Diamona in the Negev Desert. Uh, you can take a look at uh, maybe even Iran trying to use a nuke on Tel Aviv, the commercial center of Israel. 
but Israel will not allow that to happen. I don't believe that's going to happen. I don't believe that Iran is going to get uh, a nuclear weapon that they can use independently, say, of being held on a leash by Russia. Uh, I think uh, they will be stopped in their tracks, but their animosity towards Israel is not going to subside either. I think that's how we're going to see these things uh, shake out. So really when it surprised me, if we see uh, some kind of a massive attack on uh, Iran's nuclear facilities that will cripple their, uh, their drive towards obtaining a nuclear weapon, but that is going to once again destabilize the world. I think it's going to be used by those that are pursuing, say, the Great Reset, uh, those that uh, want to see the entire world uh, come under one global government. Uh, I think we're going to see those uh, developments happen. And, you know, the Bible says they have to happen. So, uh, you know, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus has given us a heavenly heads up. Uh, when you see these things begin to happen, uh, don't panic because the end is not yet, Jesus said. But we do see these things as a heavenly heads up. These birth pains should remind us that uh, Jesus could come back for us at his people, as his people uh, at any moment. Uh, the doctrine of imminency uh, that uh, we believe in regarding uh, the event called the rapture of the church. So uh, when you see these things begin to happen, as Jesus said, look up where your salvation draws near. And these are the sort of things that we're talking about in regards to a prophecy update. Now, it's obviously no secret that we are expecting a famine in the United States in particular, and by extension, the rest of the world at late summer and early August. But noting that point as well, economist predictions in us currently being in a recession affects the rest of the world as it's not even close as far as our exports are concerned and how this affects other people. But when we're talking about the biblical significance of these things, you could note incompetent leadership. You can note the production of pestilences as to whether it's a biological weapon or a result of just nature being naughty. But the point being made is this. These are simply the sort of things that are going to be characteristic of the days we can expect and live in expectation of. So the wise thing to do is twofold. In the horizontal, be wise and be prepared for what's ahead. Right. Because famines, pestilences, those can be prepared for with healthy lifestyles by stocking up food, and of course, having the kind of character that's prepared to endure these things graciously. And also noting wars and rumors of wars are countered by having an informed perspective about your place in this life and the next. But noting as well, the expectation of the Lord's return is not meant to discourage us from engaging with the world. It's incentivizing us to understand our time is limited, because whether we're taken to him as the result of a very intense increase of temperature and pressure in our local vicinity, a bomb, or the, in fact, coming of him for us. That is where this information lies. We're here not to scare you, but to inform you, to keep a level head, not a panicked head, and to also understand this is enabling you to be a witness wherever and however you can. It is a dark time, but that just means go gather oil. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the other thing that I would say as far as uh, practical uh, insight into all of this, with all the economic instability, we get questions about that. What should we do? You know, I think uh, a few things you can do uh, to help weather the storm. And I mean, these things sound obvious, but uh, uh, it's just amazing to me how many people I talk to that don't, for instance, uh, live on a budget, uh, that don't take a look at what their resources are and what their expenditures are. And so uh, when we're dealing with a minimum of an 8% 
uh, recession rate. I'm old enough to remember uh, the Carter administration when they had what was called stagflation, when uh, inflation was at 14 percent. And uh, the, the reason they called it stagflation was because interest rates were through the roof as well. Uh, the economy was stagnant, and yet there was massive inflation that was going on. We might see a very similar pattern in our day and age. And one of the ways you can really weather that is, first of all, by being a good steward of the resources that God has given to you. Do you have a budget? Do you live under that budget? Do you uh, have your expenditures exceeding your inflow on a regular basis. Boy, you know, the Bible really does speak quite a bit about how God wants us to be faithful with the resources that he has for us. So, you know, I would really encourage you, draw up a budget. The other thing that I would encourage you to do, and this is something that we are certainly pursuing uh, personally as a family and would encourage you to consider as well, is uh, try to eliminate as much as possible uh, your debt. Uh, servicing debt is really kind of a tax on yourself uh, that, uh, that we impose. And so when we live beyond our means, uh, when it's very easy to use a credit card and say, oh, well, I'll pay that off somewhere down the line, and we don't, uh, boy, you know, you end up uh, being a slave to Mr. Visa and Mr. MasterCard. Uh, you're not free at that point. So, uh, you know, come up with a strategy for uh, knocking down debt. If you got credit card debt, start with that. Uh, you might want to take a look at some of the other uh, kinds of debt that you have, like paying off a car if you're financing that. And then uh, once you start paying off, say, your credit cards and, say, your car bill, use the uh, inflow that you've got there, not, you know, to blow it on buying an uh, electric dog polisher or a fur sink, uh, but uh, use it uh, to uh, start uh, paying down. Say, if you've got a uh, mortgage on your house, uh, build up the equity that you have uh, within the home that you use. Some great resources that you can take a look at along the line of uh, not allowing uh, financial conditions to play you, but using wise biblical principles to overcome tough financial conditions is found at Crown Financial Resources. I would really encourage you to look that up there. Maybe we could put up a link to that uh, on our uh, particular website. Uh, but uh, really, really solid information there. And uh, if you'd like to sit down and uh, talk with someone about uh, stabilizing your finances, you're here in Tucson, you go to Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, uh, where uh, we are, uh, we would be happy to get to you together with one of our deacons who will be happy to take a look at, at drawing up a budget for you helping you to uh, learn to live under that, coming up with a strategy to be able to uh, reduce and even eliminate debt uh, within your life. And by doing that, uh, you're going to be leaps and bounds ahead and be able to use the resources that God has given you to be a blessing in the lives of other people, even during uh, challenging economic times. So, uh, you know, one of the more sensitive issues that obviously comes up is talking to people about their relationship with God and their relationship with their money. So we've covered both bases so far in this program today. All right. Now, uh, we received this interesting email from Craig, who uh, wants to know about a certain individual, a popular rabbi on YouTube. For those of you who are interested, I'll uh, give out some information briefly so you can be brands on your own. 
His name is uh, Manus Friedman, and his website is itsgoodtoknow.org. Uh, he's obviously a Orthodox Jewish individual. He has a much more impressive beard than I do, and he's older, but uh, that's about where the pluses stop. Uh, as far as his teaching is concerned, the email and question sent along to us a video. We weren't able to watch it, obviously, since we got this right before the broadcast, but he goes into a study on the book of Genesis and uh, clarifies to everybody that Adam and Eve did not in fact sin when they ate the free the tree of the garden of knowledge of good and evil. Sounds like Mormonism. Yeah, that yeah. makes the claim yeah. as well. Yeah. And he also clarifies that the tree was a fig tree. And now we know where he got the fig tree in reference to it's a common placement of the Jewish nation in the Old Testament prophets, what right. he would call the Nevi'im. Yeah. But oddly enough, calling that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would put him in a negative light. That being said, the handling of this is very bizarre, and it comes from a school of Jewish learning, which obviously isn't the Torah, that's the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Bible. It's not even necessarily the Mishnah or any of the other commentaries, but a Jewish mystical sect and collection of writings known as the Kabbalah. Right. And this is where I think you'll get the most out of this, Craig. When you want to understand uh, there's some contradictions between this and the New Testament, he's not going to care, neither will any of his congregants. They're Orthodox Jews. They deny that Jesus is the Messiah, they deny the New Testament as authentic revelation from God, and they don't even necessarily, I can't speak for all of them, but regard the other books of the Bible apart from the first five books of Moses as divine revelation. The rest is certainly relevant revelation, but not divine as in its foundations in their right. culture. Right. So when it comes to speaking to Orthodox Jews. We'll kind of build this up into a reverse funnel here to get to the point. Starting in broad strokes, when you're talking to Orthodox Jews, if you can speak from the Old Testament, do it, because that is what they'll listen to. The closer to Moses, the better. The second thing to keep in mind is that when you're talking to someone under the title of a rabbi, that's not necessarily synonymous with a pastor. They don't necessarily even lead synagogues. All rabbi is, as if you may remember in the time of Jesus in John chapter 1, it just means teacher, and right. it's a reference to someone who they respect enough to have knowledge or insight to the things of God to communicate it. That's all that they would be considered. If people like this rabbi, great, but if they don't, don't think that he's like the head of their church or anything. And then lastly, when it comes to the main point, obviously someone with a camera can say anything, but we can still read the text for ourselves. That's true for this broadcast as well. If he's teaching from the Kabbalah and the significance of that as far as the interesting conclusions he's coming to, what do we need to know about this collection of writings and commentaries and why it, uh, quite frankly, is kind of weird? Yeah, well, uh, the Kabbalah uh, got a lot of press a few years ago when it was uh, very in vogue uh, with uh, Hollywood and uh, recording industry individuals. Madonna, uh, for instance, made a, a big uh, statement about how she uh, read and practiced uh, the Kabbalah. Well, what is the Kabbalah? Well, it literally means to receive. And uh, it, it is a late development in Judaism, pretty much came about in the Middle Ages. And what it was, as you mentioned, was a school of Jewish mysticism. Now, when we say uh, mysticism, uh, what we mean is it was an attempt to meld uh, occultic practices 
with Jewish thought. Uh, It's really interesting that uh, when you study the Kabbalah, you discover that it very closely resembles in a lot of ways uh, what used to be called Gnosticism. If uh, you've read through some of the uh, letters in the New Testament that were dealing with early heresies, Gnosticism, that is this belief that there was a secret hidden knowledge of God and his truth that was only available to a select elite handful of those who had been initiated into this truth. And uh, that, that was something that really uh, took on gravity during uh, the New Testament among the teachings of the Gnostics uh, was that uh, God really didn't create the creation that we have right now because he is too holy and that all matter is evil in and of itself. So basically they just jumped late on the train of Gnosticism, one yes. of the church, first Christian cults. <laughs> yeah, so, so what they, they taught was that God didn't directly create the world, but he did it through what were called emanations. He created copies of copies of copies of himself, and because he had to be so separate from the evil creation, that's the only way he could interact with it. Uh, Gnostics that tried to bring this thought into Christianity, for instance, taught that Jesus... Uh, had no physical body. Uh, If he walked on uh, the seashore, he wouldn't leave footprints. If you reached out to touch him, your hand would go right through him because he was one of these emanations. And so Kabbalah teaches the same thing. Uh, They deny that the creation itself was a direct act of God. It was by a smaller God, something that would be called a demi-God, was uh, the one that created this uh, fallen uh, world that we are in. And with every descending emanation, you get farther away from the true and living God. And uh, the end result uh, were the angels. And they were the ones that you tend to interact with. And uh, these uh, angels uh, would be the ones that you could get knowledge from. How interesting that fallen angels would be able to exploit something like that. the Kabbalah approach to understanding scripture is, you know, if you've ever been to a Bible study where someone, well, probably with good intent says, well, this is what this passage means to me. Uh, well, if what they're saying is uh, this passage has impacted my life personally in this particular way, then, then that's fine. That's great. But if they're saying, well, you know, the Bible's kind of like an inkblot test. You can read into it whatever you want and uh, this is what this passage means to me, and you can't really criticize it because this is my feeling here, and my feeling governs the interpretation of Scripture. Well, that's pretty much what you're dealing with. Using this method that is absolutely subjective and feeling-based, like this is what this seems to be like to me. Well, this rabbi coming to the account in Genesis chapter 3 uh, takes a look at that and says, well, I think this is what this feels like to me. I think this is, you know, that, that this isn't really a sin that is going on here, because after all, they're going after wisdom. They're going after supernatural insight, and uh, that's what Kabbalah is all about. Kabbalah is pantheistic in that it ultimately teaches that God and his creation are one. Uh, that's not what the Bible tells us. Uh, Kabbalah says that creation is an emanation of God uh, that, uh, you know, again, reinforces this pantheistic uh, point of view. It obviously denies 
uh, the deity of Jesus. It denies God as he is revealed in the Bible, the creator, the one who's separate from his creation. Uh, and, and so uh, when you see people dealing with that, that's pretty much uh, what it comes down to. The reason that, that we kind of reiterate that is there are come some Gnostic-like tendencies that we see within the church, even in the word faith movement. You see a lot of the, the Gnosticism that says, you know, I'm uh, a little God, you know, the divine uh, resides in me. My words have creative power just like God's have. When you hear, say, a uh, faith teacher that says, uh, you know, that we're all little gods, when God looks in the mirror, he sees me, one of Kenneth Copeland's famous quotes, what you're dealing with is that same kind of Gnosticism. Uh, the rabbi here is applying that to Torah. Uh, the faith movement applies that to the rest of the New Testament. So you really want to stay away from that. So with that said, again, we love the Jewish people. We pray for their salvation. But as far as uh, this individual, he does not know his Messiah. And unfortunately, at this case, how to handle his Torah. Yeah. So if you want to listen to him, great. But just make sure it's in a context of knowing how the, uh, I guess, adversaries to the faith uh, approach the scripture so you can kind of maneuver around or between the spaghetti noodles to get to the sauce right if you catch the illustration right so with that said uh here's a question from lee who wants to know people are searching in these uncertain times what verses would you suggest for sharing christ that i could memorize uh, as far as what passages to have on hand to commit to memory for the purpose of evangelism. Yeah, I think uh, one of the, the, the terms that sometimes gets lost in our uh, process of evangelism is that uh, those that are most inclined to interact with non-believers, I think because of the reaction with non-believers and maybe the hostility that comes from interacting with non-believers, tend to present the good news like it was bad news. Now, granted, part of the good news is pointing out that we got a problem that only God can solve. But uh, one of the, the, the things that I think is really a great pattern is uh, the old pattern that we saw in the Four Spiritual Laws track that Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew, uh, put out. It used a great effect down through the years. Law number one, spiritually, is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, the reason I tend to emphasize that is because in my interactions with Christians before I became a Christian, not a single one ever told me that God loved me. And when it was finally shared with me that God loved me and that's why Jesus died on the cross, boy, that kind of love just drew me like a magnet to Christ. I was overwhelmed that God could love someone like me. So it's really important to start out with people saying that God wants to have a relationship with you. And a great scripture to share along the, those lines, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, when we look at John 3:16. Uh, you know, I really think simple, simple, simple is good. We can't assume that a non-believer has the references that we have as believers. You know, we tend to think John 3:16, you know, when the vacation Bible school kids come in and do their song like they did on Sunday here at, uh, uh, at uh, uh, Calvary, Calvary Christian, Christian Fellowship, Fellowship, I can remember our church name. Uh, you know, we, we tend to think, oh yeah, everybody knows John 3:16, even the little kids do. But the average person out there has never heard that. I never heard that when I was a non believer. And, and so if I were going to tell somebody what scripture should we have at 
the, the forefront of our minds. Boy, just stick to simplicity. You know, stick to John 3.16, and you can kind of break it up. For God so loved the world. The first thing you want to share with people is God isn't your enemy. God loves you. In fact, God loves you so much. This is what he did. He gave his only begotten son. Now, why did he have to give his son? Because as we all know, uh, we long for a relationship with God, but we're all separate from him. We all know that if heaven is for good people, well, we're not very good if we're really honest uh, about it. We don't even live up to the standards that we have. Uh, ministries like Ray Comfort's ministry do a great job of showing people that when they say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. Well, if they think that, you can say, well, you know, what does it mean to be a good person? They say, well, I keep the Ten Commandments. Well, let's talk about those commandments. Have you ever broken one? Have you ever told a lie? Uh, you know, have you ever put something before God? Have you ever looked at someone uh, in a relationship as an object to be used and not really cared about them as a person? Uh, you know, you could go down the list and show them that from God's point of view, the reason that we feel so empty and so antsy and, and like God is so distant is because we're distant from God. Our sins have separated us from Him. And so God did something about that. He came into our fallen, sinful creation, born of a virgin, born in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a sinless, perfect life that we could never live, and he loved us so much, he laid down that perfect life for us, dying for our sins to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. Because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead in a moment of history, we are told the third part of John 3.16. Not only does God love us, not only did God do something about our alienation and separation from him, but now we know how to get back right with God, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. All you have to do to be reconciled to God, pretty simple stuff. Just uh, put your faith and your trust in what God has done for you. Invite him to come into your life. Ask him to forgive your sins and to make you a brand new person. If you do, the Bible says... God will come into your life. He'll break, make you a brand new person. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. We might become the righteousness of God in him. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So if you're asking for a scripture to keep front and center as you share in this world, boy, just stick to John 3.16 and explain it to people. You don't have to preach a big sermon, but just the, that three-part explanation that God really loves you, that God did something about our fallenness and our alienation from him, and that by putting our faith and trust in what Jesus has done for us, we can be made right with God, we can be given eternal life, and uh, we can receive an abundant life in the here and now. So. Yeah, and uh, as far as backing that up, obviously the whole conversation is helpful to have at least in the back of your mind. You're going to find when you talk to people, you're not talking at them, you're talking to them, which means they might yeah. ask you questions you're not prepared for, or you might even have to think a bit on your feet. So what I have found, and this is again from experience and from watching others who've been in this field for a long time, is to have the verses point 
on hand. That you don't have to necessarily quote it verbatim unless you're dealing with a cult that want to twist the passage. If you're speaking to someone who's neutral or kind of hostile to you, you can basically just get the point out and saying, hey, you know that God loves you? It's not going to be less meaningful if you say, God so loved the world, or even throw in a little King Jamesy English. Yeah. And the best way to structure this is to understand the whole flow of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And again, regarding that passage, it stems from the previous verse, John 3, 15, and continues all the way to 25. And that's a very important point. He who has the Son does not have life. He who has the Son has life, that very clear dichotomy. But 15 through 17 are always key, that none should perish but have everlasting life. Then verse 16. Then verse 17, it notes the necessary understanding of judgment. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Now this is where it starts to get fun, because along with John 3.16, and keeping that in its full context, depending on who you're speaking to, there's ways to clarify issues that you don't necessarily have to memorize, but at least have in the back of your uh, mind wallet, if you will. Yeah. The first is to understand that God's policy of love isn't a new development. I've dealt with people on college campuses and classrooms that I was currently attending that it was fun. The uh, challenge was, well, that's the God of the New Testament. I like him better. Well, Deuteronomy 7.7, 7, what was his dealings with Israel? He hadn't set his face on you because you were greater than the people around you. You were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and would keep his promise which he made so if the promise made in john 3 16 means anything and the motive for john 3 16 means anything you telling this to people they're going to probably have as big eyes as you are listening to me this is right now it's like oh i never knew that another interesting thing is in ezekiel bet you never thought you'd hear that in an evangelism course chapter 33 and verse 11 God really emphasizes his point as far as how he wants to treat the filthy unbelievers in the Christian term. When we're talking to people, we need to not only have this in our own mindset towards them, but also explain this to them as how God feels about them. God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. And then goes on in the next verse to say, turn, turn, for why should you die, O Israel? If this is the way that God talks to people, then this should be the way we're talking to people if we claim to talk for God. And the last one... Loving him, not condemning him. And the most important one is obviously going to build off this point as well. It's the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. It's the foundation of what it means to be loved by God, because in this day and age, love can mean anything. You need to emphasize, in this, the love of God was manifested towards us. God demonstrates His own love towards us. That will get through all the muck of college education with them. You're going to say, this is how God loved you, that He, what? died not for the worthy, but for the undeserving, because that breaks through the three types of people you'll encounter. I've done too much bad to turn to God now, or God isn't interested in me, he doesn't care, or I hate God and I'm sure he feels the same way. All of those are eliminated with those three passages. So it's Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Memorize that one, because it's important for us too. John 3, 15 through 17 
but 3.16 is important. And, of course, Ezekiel 33.11. Deuteronomy 7.7 gets you extra credit, but understand Old Testament backup does help with the audience. Yeah, and if all that seems a little overwhelming to you, just start with John 3.16. Become an expert on that, and just keep the conversation focused on it. Great to have those other passages, because those other questions do obviously come up. But uh, one of the great things about sharing your faith with non-believers is that the more you do it, the more experienced you get, uh, the more adept you're going to be at being able to anticipate questions, answer questions, being able to answer questions in a way that gets around the roadblocks. But uh, oftentimes that only comes through experience. Yeah, and motivated to want to know the answers for yourself. You'll never be more willing to know an answer than when the test is right in front of you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hey, uh, interesting question sent along here by Yari. He said, why did Jesus tell us to pay our taxes? Wouldn't it be better if Jesus did away with taxes? Uh, Thank you. Well, Yari, that's a really great question, especially uh, among people in our day and age that look at what uh, say our government is sponsoring, uh, where tax dollars go, uh, the concern that uh, tax dollars are used to fund Planned Parenthood, uh, the, the funding of abortion on demand, and so forth. And some people say, well, uh, why, why should I pay taxes at all? Well, the short answer, Yari, is because the Bible tells us to, and he even gives us a why. In uh, Romans 13, uh, verse 1, we're told, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Now listen to this. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honored whom honor. Now, the the thing that's really amazing to me about that statement that Paul makes about uh, honoring authority, uh, you know, not rebelling against it, paying taxes, is who was the ultimate authority when he made this statement? Caesar Nero. Nero. Not just any Caesar, but a really rotten Caesar. But Paul didn't say, well, you know, if they get a better Caesar in there, maybe one that's uh, more amenable to Christian ends and doesn't persecute us so mercilessly and and, and so on. Then Maybe 250 years. <laughs> well, he just said, no, you do this because you're doing it to God. God is the one who's put these governments in place, and you do it as under the Lord. And, and the reason that I, I really wanted to take time to answer that question, Yari, is one of the uh, winds of doctrine that blows through the church from time to time, or individuals will say, you know, hey, you know, we, we did some studying, and, you know, did you know that uh, the federal income tax is not constitutional, and you don't really have to pay it, and, and, uh, and they'll get people, and this happens so often, it's just almost predictable, they'll, they'll say, we're having this big meeting uh, up in Phoenix, and, uh, you know, in order to go to this meeting, you got to sign a non-disclosure statement, you won't tell anybody about this meeting that we have going on. And uh, people will go to these meetings, and they'll hear this song and dance, and they don't pay their taxes. And then, 
the IRS tells them they got to pay their taxes, and if they say they refuse, well, guess what? Uh, the government will provide you room and board as they toss you in jail. No, you, that's a spiritual hill you want to die on. Uh, feel free, but it's not a spiritual hill that the Scripture supports. Uh, we are to pay our taxes, and we are to do it as under the Lord. And if you go, well, you know, but what are they about them misspending my money and funding all these awful things and, and all this? If you give your taxes as under the Lord, you know, just say, God, I know about all these things, and it troubles me. If you're troubled about the way that your tax money is spent, well, then support candidates in this representative form of democracy that we have that are going to stand for Christian principles. You know, do your research, do your homework. But even if uh, these candidates aren't uh, put into office, you give your taxes because the Scripture tells you to do it, God's going to bless you. Nobody can take that blessing away. All right. So, yeah, what Jesus said he meant. Yeah. Um, here's a question from Nina who wants to know what is deism? Deism, as in deos or deity, the general term for God is just that, a general belief in right. God. Obviously, uh, people who make this claim try to come across as the neutral, the moderate, the, oh, I don't commit myself to any God, kind of like in the political persuasion. I'm not Republican or Democrat. I'm not right or left. I'm moderate. And so basically at the middle ground of the road, they feel like they're at the highest pinnacle of point because it allows them the flexibility and the lack of accountability, wink, wink, in order to to appeal to the most amount of people. Now, right. obviously, religious truth isn't determined by how many people it appeals to. And, of course, the foundation of truth and ethics isn't found in the middle ground. In fact, in the middle of the road, generally all that you find are yellow streaks and dead skunks. So Stop. having a non-committal approach to God may come across as very enlightened and intelligent and, oh, I've examined these things and I just don't want to commit myself because they all have these things going for them. Well, here's the problem. There is one belief system, you and I have uh, looked a little bit into it, that has more going for it than the other belief system. And in your experience, you've looked into other world religions, I have as well, for various reasons or causes, and haven't said that, well, they all have things going for them, therefore that somehow diminishes the important questions, and that's where deism ultimately meets the uh, end of the road, so to speak, is asking what actually determines truth. Is it your opinion? Is it the popular opinion of the day? Is it the opinions of others? Right. Because note, deists and atheists don't get along very well. The point then being made is this. When it comes to truth in religion, A, can it be known? B, how should, that's a moral statement, be known? How should it be known? And finally, when it comes to deism, when it uh, regarding the alternatives, why is it that we have personally come to the conclusion and are willing to stand by that before God's throne <laughs> that it isn't going to, in fact, be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that we can be content in that? Yeah. yeah well, deism, I think, uh, is popular, and uh, whether people realize they're being a deist or not, it essence, in essence says that God's not really involved with his creation. It acknowledges that there must be a creator, a designer out there. But usually the illustration is, is that God made the grand watch of the universe, wound it up, and is just letting it run down. He does not get involved. 
There's the no revelation of of his creation. No miracles. No revelation. You know, God is completely distant and separate from us. There was a Bette Midler song out a few years ago that says that God is watching us from a distance. And, and that's the idea behind it all. The, the reason I think that it resonates with some people is that uh, it, it seems to answer some of the more challenging questions that come up if you start talking about a personal God, like why do innocent people suffer? Why does God allow wicked men like Adolf Hitler come to power if he really cares about us an inactive god would seem to solve these kind of dilemmas but there's a, a big problem with all of that you know first of all uh because it you know provides a simple answer to a complex problem doesn't mean it's right great illustration of this happened to me when i was taking I think it was trig when I was in high school, and I always struggled with math, but they always told me I had to take more math, and so there I was in trigonometry, and we had this exam, and uh, some of the really smart kids in, in my class who were going on to Ivy League schools and stuff like that were next to us, were taking this test, and boy, I zipped through this test and, um, you know, thought it was pretty easy, but then I looked around and I realized that some of these people that were obviously a lot smarter in math than I was were still working on their exam. It was like 20 minutes into the class and they were still working away. So I went back and checked my work and looked around and they're still working feverishly on these things. And, and you know, finally the class period came to an end and most of them didn't even finish the test. And I, I came to a conclusion, either I was a genius at trigonometry or I missed something. And when I got my test back, I discovered I missed something. You know, there, there's an old saying, there's a solution to every problem, neat, possible, and wrong. When someone says that God is distant or uninvolved with his creation, you know, the, the, the huge roadblock that it runs into, Sean, isn't it the person of Jesus Christ? Yep. What yep. does the person of Jesus Christ have to say about someone who believes that God is distant and uninvolved and aloof from his creation? Well, he'd probably put his arms out and say, who do you think you're talking to? Yeah. To make it throw in a Brooklyn accent. Now, we're pressed for time. I wish I could go more into this, but here's the fundamentals. In the deist position, it's under the assumption that God has not revealed himself, right. which dismisses every single religious claim while it pretends to acknowledge them. And at the same time, the most fundamental religious claim that every belief has to have going for us is who are we, where are we going, and why are we going there? Jesus is the only one who backed up his words on those matters with deeds, that in a moment of history he was physically and verifiably murdered by the Roman government, and then as he predicted, and as the scriptures before him predicted, rose from the dead in order to show his authority, not only, the over, resurrection, where, yeah. not only over where we were headed, but why we were going there, that if you have me, you're going with me to the place that I was, and it was a better place than what we have here. Yeah. But if on the other hand you take the deist position, it's essentially being content with a question mark. Now that's going to be fine until they're 
hopefully capable of enacting some form of conscience left on their deathbeds and still asking a question. Well, I don't know. Let's see where this goes. No, you're invested now, and you want to know with certainty what those things are. And the belief that there is nothing to be certain of is, in fact, a certainty. So it's self-defeating. We don't want to live in a nonsense system. If we look at the pagan religions, it was the speculation of man, not revelation. If we look at the philosophical systems of man, at a fundamental point, they fail to follow their own standards. When we look at the conglomerations or mishandlings of Christianity, they misrepresent the character of Jesus at some point, some earlier than others. And that's ultimately what it comes down to. Jesus, even atheists acknowledge this, was a historical figure. Jesus's death, according to the most liberal of scholars you could imagine, said his death is the most certain fact we have of ancient history. And his resurrection is verified by every every single historical standard you can use to critique it. Right. The m- ultimate definition is, well, I'm smarter than those people. I'm glad we've established you're arrogant, but here's the point. When it comes to the facts on the table, what do you do with them? Do you accept them or reject them? Because neutrality doesn't accomplish, contribute, or prove anything. And that's what we ultimately need to challenge the deist on. If they can quote more passages from more varieties of religions or claim to have traveled more places than us and experienced these religions, whatever that means, for themselves, good for them, but let's look at the facts we have on the table. Right. A lot of people can claim that they have good feelings and they ultimately end up come on, coming off of a heroin overdose. That doesn't mean it's a good thing. A lot of people can have had good experiences, but they could have been lied to through a Ponzi scheme and the night after after end up with no clothes in the in the basement of a um, <laughs> warehouse yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Experiences don't determine facts or reality. Feelings don't determine fact or reality. Reality determines reality. We need to know how to test that, how to verify it, and how to know it. Yeah, and, and if you get in a conversation with someone that takes that point of view, that uh, God is aloof, di- distant, just, yeah, they're, they're willing to acknowledge, though, that there is a God, that he is a creator. And, you know, you can engage by saying, well, what do you suppose the purpose of this creation was? Why would God go through all this trouble of creating us and giving us this hunger and thirst to ask these kind of spiritual questions if there were no answers? And then you can share that Jesus, in fact, has answered those questions. And always bring the conversation back to Jesus. That's your best bet. Yeah, and the good news is they're fighting a losing battle. Solomon himself acknowledged in Ecclesiastes that God's put eternity in our hearts, and yeah. that's not something they're going to be comfortable with unless they are literally beyond saving, yeah. which we don't pray for anybody. Yeah. All right, yeah. Uh, we got about 30 seconds, but I think we can uh, handle this last one. David wants to know about rededicating your life to Jesus. Is that biblical? Someone who lost their faith and is coming back to it, or maybe aren't as following Jesus as closely as they once did and want to re dedicate themselves? Oh, absolutely. It's biblical. Uh, Remember what Jesus said to Simon Peter. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you've returned, strengthen your brethren. Returning is possible. So returning is possible. Jesus uh, allowed Peter to reaffirm his love three times after the resurrection. So rededication, definitely biblical. And acting out lamentations, God's mercies are new every morning. We take advantage of that whether we need it or not. Absolutely. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. 
You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.